0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more.
1: I may not live to see our glory. I may not live to see our glory. But I will Can you introduce yourself and tell us what neighborhood of New York City you live in? <laughs> Everybody knows that. Um, my name is Lynn manuel Miranda, and I live in Washington Heights, New York.
0: You're listening to The Ensemblist, the only podcast that shows you Broadway from the inside out. Welcome i'm mo brady
1: round raise a glass to
0: freedom something they can never take away no matter what they tell you hey fam we have a treat for you today way back in 2014 Co-creator of The Ensemblist, Nika Graf lanzaroni and I sat down with Lin-Manuel Miranda. This was before Hamilton, before Moana, before Mary Poppins Returns, before DuckTales, when he was merely a Tony Award-winning composer with three Broadway shows under his belt. When we talked to him about writing for ensembles, he shared why he chooses to deploy a vocal ensemble, the process of writing in The Heights, now in production as a motion picture, and some of his first steps in writing the opening of Hamilton. This interview was five years ago, so it doesn't have the audio quality of our current episodes. However, Lynn is such a sweetheart on mic and is dropping such great truth bombs that we felt it was finally time to take the full interview out of the vaults and share it with you. Here, in his own words, is Lin Manuel Miranda. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.
1: Why do you need an ensemble? Um, You need an ensemble because you're trying to immerse uh, the audience in a world. And, you know, the richer the ensemble, the the more immersive the world. You want oomph, you know. uh, Uh, A chorus is always much more fun than a than a solo. I think. One of the times it's most important to use your to deploy your ensemble, right? Because everything's everything's a everything's a tool or a weapon, depending on how you're feeling that day. The songtime always says the trickiest thing about writing uh, an ensemble number is what is something that everyone in this neighborhood is feeling at the same time. God, that's good. The only thing they sing in unison is "God, that's good." Then it's all these other crazy individual uh, lines within it. Quintet, West Side Story. Counterlines all smashing together. They're all looking forward to something that night. You know, Anita's looking forward to getting it on with Bernardo because he's horny after the after he fights, <laughs> and everyone else is looking forward to the fight. I'm Think of the opening number of Beauty and the Beast. Everyone can agree that Belle's crazy. You know, there's something about that girl Belle, and they find unison lines to sing on that. With with heights, we made it about the grind. Everything is. We get our coffee. We get our paper. We're all working our asses off to get through the day. And so you find those communal moments and, and, and build the world. When do you pull out that tool? I think of To Life from Fiddler, which starts as a toast, and then everyone's congratulating them on oh you got your, your daughter and, and you were getting married fantastic and then it grows and grows and then the cossacks come in and you're like oh shit is about to get real and then they congratulate them and it suddenly becomes this cross-cultural celebration that's like insane i mean it, it bumps to this other uh magnitude what's great about fiddler is it used the family moments that we all can celebrate. And that's why that show's Universal, even though it's about this tiny town in Russia, everyone feels like it's about their dad or about their family because the musical numbers aren't weddings. They're, we're gonna get married. They're, a baby was born. Um, they're sort of the milestone group events in our life and they build out from there, which is so sort of genius and a key to the appeal of that show. What
0: characteristics do you love in a vocal ensemblist?
1: We love people who sing strong. I have found that your musical director and your choreographer will be the most important voices in an audition room because sometimes it's one for you, one for me. You'll have an amazing dancer who sings strong but not always on key. Um, or, um, But I would prefer someone who does not have a Raul Esparza voice who sings on key and sings loud over a dancer who's going to stop singing once they're in, an, they're in the safety of an ensemble. And it's like, okay, no one can hear me singing. I can stop singing it out. Uh, which happens, um, and we can catch you because you each have individual mics on. Um, so we can literally, we can go through a night and be like, that person is not singing that track they're supposed to be singing. You're busted. It, it rarely comes to that. But you know, we're, we're looking for people who are not afraid of singing. It seems so impossible in the moment. Tommy always talks about the inherent unfairness of when you go to this open dance call where all of these people have worked their lives off to be the best dancers in the room, and they are. And now we're going to go make them do the thing that are least comfortable. And now we're followed by, here's 16 bars of the thing you worked your ass off to make sound okay. (laughs) Um, Because you've been working working on flipping and defying gravity and doing all these incredible things, and now we're going to make you sing happy birthday to you. It can be very tough, and we, we're aware of how tough that is. And we generally find if it's an amazing dancer and they're gonna be invaluable to Andy, they can carry a tune and they're willing to sing loud and sing their part, we're cool. And then there are the people who who are those genuine triple threats, who can just sort of sing and dance and do everything. But generally, the skill sets are all over, are all over the map. You know there are uh, amazing soloists who you know can't sing a lick, and we're like, all right, we'll find a rap lyric for them to say. But they are—they're just the way they move is like no one else, and you—you want that on stage. And then there are people who are just incredible singers who are just sort of really great at everything. You know, you're looking for people who can sing the score and do these dances. And sometimes there's a—sometimes you never have to compromise on either end. Um, We've been lucky to find a lot of people in that camp, and sometimes you know. It's like, all right, that's okay, I have coverage for those. I have tenor coverage here. So you can have that guy who can't sing a lick and does three flips in the air. (laughs)
0: How does it feel to hear an ensemble number you've written for the
1: first time? Uh, it feels... well, here's the thing. The one thing you cannot do when you're a composer alone in a room with your keyboard uh, or your guitar or whatever you write on, um, is hear what a company sounds like singing your work. It's it's actually the most thrilling moment uh, is in the Sits Probe when all the instruments are playing, all the voices are playing. Um, it's, it's actually the best. Um, I have a moment I'm still trying to work through in Hamilton. I wrote this opening number and left it in a drawer for six months before I wrote any more of the show. Um, And it's this line where originally it was, Aaron Burr says, you never learn to take your time. And um, he holds time in this very R&B-ish way. Time, it's a four note time. We put the company on it when we started building the opening number of Hamilton for real. And every time, the because the show really is so much about time and how much we get done um, in the time we have um, and how much this motherfucker got done in the time he had. Every time the chorus hits time, I burst into tears and it's a real problem. I'm not bursting into tears describing it to you because I'm on stage and I can't do that. That's a douchey thing to do, burst into tears about your own music, while you're on stage. Um, you know, if I were a composer sitting safely in the back, that would be fine. Um, but I can't be like, oh, listen to that chord, um, while I'm standing there in character. Um, so I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do for that moment. I, I haven't made it through that moment without getting verklempt. Um and I will have to work through it. That is my challenge till January. <laughs> Within the Heights we were very much trying to uh, convey a community we wanted it to feel like you could follow that person down the block and there's another musical happening with Nina Lafarga and Ricky, Ricky Tripp as they exit stage right and they do their own thing. Um, and and it's a credit to um, Tommy's direct, Tommy Kale's direction and the Blankenbuehler's choreography that it felt like that. It felt like this community. You know, I was in the show, so the first time I saw the show, I was blown away by all the other s- s- plot lines that were happening that were purely visual. You know, with 96,000... It's a tricky, we have these individual lines of, well, with if I had the money, I would do this. If I had the money, I would do this. And then you see it spread and spread and spread, and you can slowly fold in until you don't even realize the entire company is now doing this crazy unison number. Because we kind of keep going into these solos and solos and how much can we continue to build while doing a solo? Um, and that was very much a group, that thing was written by committee. It was, all right, can we get away with this happening? Um, and what can we build here? And, all right, so... Benny will solo over this while everyone's going, whoa. And, like, we sort of... I worked very closely with, with Andy to find the way to make that build musically and physically at the same time. Logistically, in terms of an audience
0: watching a show, do you plug in an ensemble number because you've done too many solos? Or you've done... Do you...
1: Do you... Oh, that's an interesting question. When to use ensemble numbers and when to solo. I really, um approach a score like I'm making a mixtape for someone I love and I want them to know how much I love them. Just like you made a cassette for that girl you liked when you were in 9th or 10th grade. Remember cassettes? They were the best. It's it's really about shifts in energy and momentum and taking the audience uh, on a ride. I'm trying to think of an example where I realized we needed a major energy shift. I think the the, the most notable one we had in, in Heights was Act 2 where you know, shit got real. A major character passes away. And it just got sad. I mean, it was just really sad and I didn't want Act 2 to be overwhelmingly sad. Um, and I think two days before previews, we were like, we need to hear from the Piragua guy again. That guy's the best and he's gonna pull us out of this sadness we're in. And two days before previews, literally on a ten minute break, we wrote the reprise. And when he comes out and starts singing, like, the <laughs> screams. With a relief, He says a joke that's not even that funny, but because of what's come before, it's this huge release. So there's lots of, you play with tension and release um, a lot, and, and the ensemble can, can help you do that. Um, you know, if we've spent time with this character for a while, let's go. The ensemble can also be a wash. Um, it can be like, you know, um, again, watching Sweeney Todd yesterday, the chorus will get us from here to here, and and we're there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it can be incredibly uh, useful in that way. The question is, what is your favorite ensemble part you've ever written? Oh, I can tell you the anecdote about the ensemble character that most surprised me because he just showed up one day and wouldn't leave. I was supposed to be writing the dad's song in In the Heights, which is this very intense song about fathers and sons and relationships and how do we break certain cycles and do better for our kids. It would have required me to be in a very dark place for many days in a row to write that song. Um, And I said, I don't want to write this song today. And then Biragua guy showed up and decided, I want you to write a song for me. Biragua guy had no lines in the show. He wasn't even a thing. He was just a texture. And um, I wrote his song in about 10 minutes um, because I didn't want to write Inutil. And he showed up and said, write my song. And he showed up. And I, I remember emailing it to the creative team being like, this could go anywhere in the show. It can kind of go where we need it to, but I like this guy and I liked what he started saying. Biragua Guy is kind of a metaphor for everyone in the show. He's a small business owner, a big business owner, Mr. Soft. He is honing in on his turf, but he's going to literally keep scraping by because he scrapes ice. Mm-hmm. I'm using literally correctly, kids. He scrapes by. And, um,. And we just, and his, his little 10 minute tune ended up being the spirit of the show and then saving us again in act two when we needed him. Uh, he said, I'll sing again. Um, and again, I don't mean the actor. I mean, literally this character that popped up in our heads unbidden. Um, so I have a soft spot in my heart for Piragua Guy because um, he demanded to be heard. Um, and that's, uh, that's always lovely when, when characters do that. Um, a lot of time you're like, come on, what do you need to say? You're in this moment. What do you want to say? I'll write it down. I'll write it down and it will sing beautifully. Um, but he was like, hey, I got this song to sing. Um, so that's lovely when when, when ensemble moments uh, like that happen. I want to know about Alabanza. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that. So Alabanza took a lot of tries to get right. The first draft of Alabanza was not a choral number. It was a three-verse Usnavi eulogy. It was not just that first um, stanza that Usnavi says, but then he kind of narrates her life. He It was, I can not remember all the lines, but it was like Abuela Claudia moved to this city from Cuba in 1943 with the growing lent. Land- with the growing latin community the land of opportunity wasn't exactly free she wasn't light enough to pass for white another class of life is what she had to th- it was like this whole thing about like being latino and segregation. like it was sort of this whole thing but i wrote it and was like we covered this we covered this in Paciencia FFA already, we don't have to hit it twice. What we need to get to is the grief the community feels, and we need to get there as quickly as possible. So, instead of Usnavi having the verbiage to narrate this woman's incredible life, he doesn't have the words, and the community takes over when he doesn't. Um, which is more honest to that moment. Really sort of built very beautifully and organically, and I built that with uh, with Alex and Bill's full participation. Uh, when the Paciencia y Fe shows back up, it's like, and it was really, it was really lovely. But so we had that three-verse version of Alavanza, and it didn't feel right, so we chucked it. And then we went to Off-Broadway with a completely different song in that moment called The Day Goes By. And it was a lovely song. In fact, the ensemble performed it for a Gypsy of the Year ceremony. You can find it on YouTube. They performed it as just sort of this, this group number. But it doesn't sound like the Heights. It sounded like a really lovely Beatles song about death. So we went and dug up Alabanza, which again, in the Usnavi eulogy version was just, Alabanza, Alabanza, Doña Claudia. It was just that phrase, and then back to a, and back to him rapping. Um, and then we just built it, and we just slowly built it and built it. With one word, it does uh, what all of Usnavi's three verses be able to do. And, and that's, I think, one of the, you know, the trickiest things is knowing when to be like, you know what, we don't need to say all this. We need to find a way to convey it that is musical and, and, and does the work emotionally without us connecting the dots for everyone.
0: Who tells your story? I'd like to tag on a little advice at the end.
1: So, maybe for an aspiring composer. Well, here's the thing, aspiring composers. Producers don't want you to write for an ensemble. Ensembles are expensive. Ensembles mean extra actors, ensembles mean extra insurance. But, you know, and I know that nothing sounds like a company in full tilt uh, hitting a moment at the same time. There is, there's a reason that musical theater is going to outlive us all. Uh, There's a reason that musicals outlast pop songs and it's because you get these glorious moments where the entire ensemble is hitting this one moment and the entire audience of perfect strangers uh, are totally with them. Um, So I encourage you to find those moments Um, and give us more of those moments. Give us more to see.
0: Special thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda for sharing his stories with us. The Ensemblist was produced today by me, Mo Brady. You can help others find out about The Ensemblist by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts you can download episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at theensemblist.com and follow us on Instagram to see the latest posts from our website where we share the stories of talented artists working in Broadway ensembles. Thanks for listening guys. Until next time.